in um, Isaiah 42, starting in verse 13, the scripture that Paul read for us earlier. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If you don't and you want to find one in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 523 in that Bible. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. I'd like to start by sharing a song by the Canadian rock group Simple Plan. Um, I, I don't know if this has been played a lot on the American radio. You see, Canada has a law that a certain percentage of what they play on the radio has to be Canadian artists. So last time I was up in Canada, I heard this song, and um, it's a great song. Maybe some of you will know it, maybe you won't. But the words go like this. Tell me what's wrong with society when everywhere I look I see young girls dying to be on TV. They won't stop till they've reached their dreams. Diet pills, surgery, Photoshop pictures and magazines. Telling them how they should be. It doesn't make sense to me. Is everybody going crazy? Is anybody going to save me? Can anybody tell me what's going on? Tell me what's going on. If you open your eyes, you'll see that something is wrong. I guess things are not how they used to be. There's no more normal families. No one cares. No one's there. I guess we're all just too darn busy. And money's our first priority. It doesn't make sense to me. Is everybody going crazy? Tell me what's wrong with society. Where everywhere I look, I see rich guys driving big SUVs while kids are starving in the streets. No one cares. No one likes to share. I guess life's unfair. Is everybody going crazy? Is anybody going to save me? Can anybody tell me what's going on? Tell me what's going on. If you open your eyes, you'll see that something, something is wrong. I don't know about you, but those words resonate with me. We look at this world and it's crazy. Our selfishness has messed things up and who's going to save us? Well, many hoped several years ago it might be Barack Obama. Others are now looking to the 112th Congress. Others look to education or they put their faith in Greenpeace or the One Campaign. Others have given up hope that anyone can save us, and they're just trying to deal with their own problems themselves, either by trying to forget about their problems, immersing themselves in video games or, or the club or the bar scene, or uh, by turning to community service or activism, trying to become a part of the solution. But, but who is going to save us? That's the same question that God's people were asking in the time of Isaiah. We've been looking at their story. We, we wrap up a number of weeks on Isaiah this morning. We've been looking at them when they were in exile, working our way through Isaiah 40 to 55. They'd endured the trauma and the terror of being attacked and conquered by the empire of Babylon and dragged into captivity. There they were trying to scratch out an existence. They were grieving. They were uprooted. They were homeless. They were vulnerable. And they felt like God had abandoned them. As we saw two weeks ago, God argued that their grief was actually their own doing, that God had been forced to discipline them because despite his repeated warnings and pleas, they had steadfastly refused to listen to him, to be faithful to him, to trust him. But now, years into their exile, they still won't admit that they've done anything wrong. Rather, they accuse God of being weak and of not caring for them. 
Meanwhile, God in their mercy, we saw a couple weeks ago, has given them good news that he's sending the Persian emperor uh, Cyrus to rescue them from their exile and to bring them back home. But God's people don't, won't even receive that. They counter that God is talking foolishness, that Cyrus is the wrong kind of savior. He's not even a Jew and he's not on their side. When they think of a savior, a Messiah, they think of the kind of king promised to them back in Isaiah 9. We looked at that scripture before Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's the kind of savior they want a powerful Jewish savior to make them a mighty nation again. They have no use for God's salvation if that's not what God is going to give them. We saw two weeks ago in Isaiah 48 that God responds to, to their continued wickedness and rebellion and, and all of their arguing with him by, by showing his people grace and even more grace. Two giant heapings of grace. First, God said he would bring them home from their exile through Cyrus anyway. And second, he then begins to promise that he would give them a second savior. Not this time to deal with their captivity, their political and economic problems, but rather this time to deal with their spiritual problems, their unbelieving rebellious hearts, their idolatry, their, their unfaithfulness and their offenses against God. God calls this second savior his servant. In Isaiah, there are four so-called servant songs, which are poems about this servant. Back in December, we looked at the first in Isaiah 42. Last week, Dave Stradling looked with us at the second in Isaiah 49. The first or the third is in Isaiah 50. We're skipping over that one this morning. You can go home and read it yourself if you want to. But the fourth is our passage this morning. It's the fourth servant song, and it's the one where we get the fullest picture of this servant, this second savior that God is sending and the salvation that the servant will bring. In today's passage, we discover, like never before, God's answer to Israel's need for a savior. And for those of us who resonate with the lyrics of Simple Plan, we may be happy to know that this servant is just as much God's answer to our need for a savior. But if Cyrus was an unlikely savior, if salvation through Cyrus seemed like foolishness to God's people, then God's new salvation plan is far more foolish. I mean, a, a pagan foreign conqueror is bad enough, but at least he's a powerful conqueror. Now in today's passage, God offers us a weak, ugly, despised, rejected, Loser for a savior. You see, we human beings love to think that we know best. I do. Just ask my wife. <laughs> and we've been at this way ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to disregard God's commands and, and to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And ever since we've been arguing with God, we've been insist insisting that we know better than him what's best. Which, if you really stop and think about it, is pretty foolish. I mean, for us to argue with the eternal creator about how he runs the universe is like for our pet goldfish to argue with us about how we're brushing our teeth wrong. 
And if our know-it-all goldfish insisted on continuing to give us dumb, ignorant advice and arguing with us about everything, we'd probably get pretty fed up. And so does God with us. And so finally God says, okay, fine. You think you're so wise? You think you're so sure you know best? Well, then I'm going to turn your wisdom on its head. And I'm going to do something that you will think is totally beyond stupid just to show you. And so in the servant song, we meet the foolish servant savior that God sends us. This poem is composed of five stanzas. It begins in the first stanza, uh, 52, 13 to 15, with a riddle. Now, once you know the answer to any riddle, it's not perplexing anymore, right? I mean, uh, what's black and white and red all over? Grown. We've heard that one a million times. A newspaper, of course. Or, yeah, a whole bunch of other things. A zebra with a sunburn, blah, blah, blah. Um, as my kids reminded me last night. <laughs> and as Christians, we rehearse so many times the riddle about how God saved us by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins that, that we can lose the mystery and the shock and the scandal of this riddle. So let's see if Isaiah can help us to hear the riddle afresh today. Here it is, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And then down in verse 15, kings will shut their mouths because of him. That's Old Testament imagery, which means that these kings will be overcome. They'll be defeated. So far, so good. We have uh, a wise savior and you've got, uh, well, you've got to be wise to get yourself raised up and exalted and to overcome rulers to get kings to shut their mouth. Must be a pretty smart guy. But here comes the riddle. Verse 14. Many will be appalled at him. Why? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness. This guy is ugly. Really ugly. Now we have to remember that this is poetry. And so it may be that this servant literally looks like the elephant man. Or it may mean figuratively that the shape and the complexion of this guy's life will so grate against our ideas of beauty and greatness and success that he's offensive to us. But either way, we get the point. There's something marred and twisted and disfigured and revolting about this servant. He's nothing like the stereotypical handsome prince with his commanding presence and his impressive resume. No, people find this servant appalling. So here's the riddle. How in the world will a man like this rise to the top and come to rule nations and kings? What kind of wisdom is he going by? Well, let's move on to the second stanza of the poem, 53, 1 to 3. It begins by heightening the suspense further. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I think the rhetorical question here is, who's going to get God's riddle? This servant is going to come not looking like anyone expects. And who is going to recognize or believe that God is actually bringing salvation through him? 
God works in mysterious ways, and most people miss it. The poem then continues by describing the beginnings, the early life of this servant. And if you know the prophecies of Isaiah, then you know that the Messiah was foretold to come um, from the root or stump of Jesse, who was Jesse was uh, King David's father. So in other words, the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of King David. And here Isaiah picks up on this root language. This servant will grow up like a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground. Have you ever planted a garden or transplanted small seedlings? If you have, you know that, that these little tender shoots do not do very well in dry ground. In fact, if you don't keep the soil very moist, they'll probably wither up and die. And I'm told that when roots come up out of dry ground, it's because they can't find any moisture down in the soil. So in other words, it's a poetic way of saying that this servant's beginnings are not auspicious. They're precarious. They're unlikely. They're shaky from the start. Continuing in verse 3, as this boy grows, he's not beautiful. He's not majestic. There's no reason that we should see anything special in him. He's ordinary, even ugly. And as he matures into a man, he's despised and rejected. He's overlooked. What kind of savior is this? He's a loser. He's not a savior at all. At least that's what it seems. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is the kid at school that everyone picks on. The last one picked for the kickball team in gym class. The one who never has a date to the dance. The student who doesn't get into college. The employee who's always passed over for a promotion. He's a man of sorrows, familiar with pain. He's got a rough life. Things don't go well for him. He lives on the wrong side of the tracks. His life is full of troubles and failures. This is God's savior. This isn't wise. It's utterly foolish. I mean, Cyrus the Persian was bad enough, but this is worse. How can this man save anyone? How will he ever be highly exalted or come to, to uh, overcome mighty kings? Well, this brings us to the third stanza. Verses 4 to 6, this is the, the heart of the poem, and it's the hinge on which the whole thing turns. Here the riddle is answered and the, the mystery is disclosed. This section begins with a start. My Bible translates the first word surely, but I'm not sure that that's strong enough. The Hebrew word communicates that what's coming is unexpected. As in, look, or wow, or surprise, or huh? He took up our pain and bore our suffering. That's why he's a loser and a nobody. That's why he suffers. That's why he's rejected and despised. He's taking up, he's bearing in himself our suffering. He's identifying with us. Wow. Let's remember this prophecy was originally given to a defeated captive people in exile. What a comfort for them that the Savior whom God sends understands their experiences. 
that he's one of them, that he suffers with them. And what a comfort to us as well. God doesn't just come for the successful or for the popular, for those who have it together. He comes for those who hurt, for those who fail, for those who've been victimized, for those who are rejected. In Dorothy Sayers' prologue to her Christmas story, she has one of the wise men come out on stage and speak these words on the way to Bethlehem. All I ask is the assurance that I am not alone. Some courage, some comfort against this burden of fear and pain. About my palaces, the jungle creeps and winds. Famine and plague are my fireside companions. And around the circle of the fire, the glare of human eyes. The lion sits by the waterhole where the women go down to wash. In the branches crouches the leopard. I look out between scraggling branches of the vine and see fear in the east, fear in the west, armies and banners marching and garments rolled in blood. Yet this is nothing if only God will not be indifferent. If he is beside me bearing the weight of his own creation. If I may hear his voice among the voices of the vanquished. If I may look upon the hidden face of God and read in the eyes of God that he is acquainted with grief. And as we come to realize that the servant of Isaiah is in fact the Christmas babe in the manger, more than that, that he's God himself come down to us, we begin to realize what an amazing savior the servant is indeed. Yet Isaiah continues describing the servant. We considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. In other words, most people can't see and don't get that this servant is actually God's savior. In fact, the religious people look at, at this suffering, failing loser and, and they conclude, well, God must not love him very much. This must be his just desserts that he's getting. He must be a very bad man. He must have done something really wicked for God to let him suffer this way. But then verse 5 sets us straight and takes us right to the heart of the riddle. He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. Yes, he, his suffering was God's punishment. Yes, he suffered as a result of wickedness, but surprise, it wasn't his own wickedness he was suffering for. Rather, it was ours. Remember, Israel had a big sin problem at this time. They'd rejected God's savior, Cyrus. They'd tuned God out. They'd rebelled against God. They were arguing with God and rejecting God. But instead of rejecting them back, God had given them grace and even more grace. God not only brought them home from exile through Cyrus anyway, but God raised up a second savior also, this servant to take the punishment that their sins deserved. And as we'll see, not just their sins, but 
the sins of everyone who will get to know this servant and put their trust in him. Continuing in verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace. Do you remember back two weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 48 in that chapter? God had pleaded with his people, if only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. But they wouldn't listen. And if you remember the chapter ended, there is no peace for the wicked. That was a dismal ending to that chapter. But thankfully, it wasn't the end of the book. Because now a new chapter is opened up and now God gives his people yet another chance. He sends them his servant and God offers to take the punishment that his wicked people deserve and to put it on his servant so that we could have another shot at that peace. Rivers of peace. Rivers of shalom, to use the Hebrew word that Isaiah used. I recently heard this definition of shalom. A rounded wholeness comprising personal fulfillment, harmonious society, and a secure relationship with God. That's what all of us are longing for. And because God's punishment fell on his servant instead of on us, that shalom can be ours. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Wow. This is staggering when we come to realize who this servant turns out to be. Brian uh, Chapel, who's another preacher, tells the story about a distressed father who sat by the bedside of his comatose son who was hurt playing basketball. It was a crucial point in the game, and the 16-year-old had lunged for a pass which was going out of bounds, and in the process he toppled over a spectator's chair, and the, the leg of the chair caught him in the stomach, damaging vital or uh, organs, but he didn't know it. He felt little pain. He continued to play the closing minutes of the game while he was hemorrhaging internally. And by the time the, the pain grew enough that they took him to the emergency room, it was almost too late. And the doctors worked frantically to save him, but the outcome was very uncertain. The son eventually recovered, but during those awful hours of waiting for the slightest sign of, of recovery, the family members were forced to ask questions they've never asked before. The father was alone on the bedside shift one night, and uh, the pastor came and visited. And trembling with emotion, the father asked, Will God kill my son to punish my sin? No, the young minister said, searching for words that could comfort and could grant renewed trust in, in the God who this father now so desperately needed. No, the minister said, the Lord is not punishing your son for your sin. He couldn't because he punished his son for your sin. We saw it in the video earlier. God takes all of it, the sin, the punishment, and he lays it all on his own son. That's how much God loves his people. 
how could a loving God punish his own innocent son? Some have taken exception and they've called it divine child abuse. Well, the next stanza of the poem clears God of such charges. Because in it we discover that the son willingly agrees to take the punishment. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He could have. He could have run away. He could have protested. He could have said no. But instead, he willingly took on this punishment. He himself chose this destiny for himself. Hebrew experts tell us, for instance, that in verse 7, the verb afflicted is reflexive. In other words, the servant isn't a passive recipient of the affliction. Rather, he takes it on himself. He submits himself to this affliction, to this punishment. Why? Because God's servant loves us too. All of this is amazing, surprising, counterintuitive. So much so that nobody got it. Nobody understood. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. But who of his generation protested? Nobody saw a reason to stick up for him. Nobody got what he was doing. Nobody saw. Nobody understood. He was utterly alone in his death as he took our sins and sufferings to the cross. For the transgression of my people, he was punished, says the Lord. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Though he had done no violence, no deceit was in his mouth. He died as a wicked man with wicked people. Yet he was totally innocent. And because he had no offenses of his own to pay for, he could pay for ours. And that is the key which begins to answer the riddle and to unravel the mystery of God's crazy wisdom. Once you see it, it makes sense. If you know the Old Testament especially. Verses 4 to 10, for example, of Isaiah 40 or 53 are full of language from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. That book taught God's Old Testament people that When they sinned against God, they were guilty. They deserved punishment. And so they were to sacrifice a spotless lamb or or a goat without blemish to take their place, to die in their stead, to take their punishment so that they could live. But could an unreasoning animal really adequately pay for the offenses of a human being? Or were these sacrifices teaching and preparing the people for a greater sacrifice which was needed and which God himself would one day offer. This leads us to the last stanza then, and the rest of the riddle becomes clear. The servant will see his offspring. His days will be prolonged. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will enjoy a portion with the great and divide the spoils with the strong. Because the servant is innocent and because he willingly offers in love to 
die in order to rescue others, God is very pleased. God is very proud of his boy, that, that his servant, his son, has this attitude of self-sacrificing love. And so God will not let death be the last word for the servant. No, he will, he will raise his servant up. He will reward him. He will highly exalt him. Now the riddle's fully explained. Not fully understood. I mean, how exactly can the person who has just died and been buried now be rewarded and exalted? Well, the answer comes much later in the story. But for now, at least, we see how kings will shut their mouths and the servants will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. His suffering, his weakness, his humility will not keep him from greatness, but will rather actually be the means through which God elevates him to greatness. That's God's wisdom. That's how God works. That's how God saves. Yes, God can do the Cyrus kind of salvation, the powerful political kind. God can knock heads. He can put enemies, our enemies in their places. But that kind of salvation only gets us so far. It can save us from our enemies, but it can't save us from ourselves. It can restrain bad people from doing bad things, but it can't make bad people into good people. For that, another kind of savior is needed. A surprising kind, a crazy kind, a foolish kind. A savior who's a loser, a savior who's weak, a savior who's a failure. That kind of savior can really help us. And he offers his salvation not just for the Jews at the time of Isaiah's prophecy. No, he also offers it, verse 15, for many nations, for kings and for those they rule. In fact, as it turns out, he offers it for the whole world. The rock group Simple Minds look at this world and they sing, is everybody going crazy? Is anybody going to save me? Isaiah tells us we have a God who does, in fact, want to save us, who, through his servant, reaches out and draws us close. Will you let him? Will you take his outstretched hand, the one with the nail scars in it? Maybe you've done that before, but your heart has grown cold and distant. Maybe you've never let Jesus, the servant, be your savior. We're going to sing a closing song now. And as we sing it, I want you to respond, or to invite you to respond if, right where you are, just quietly at your seats, to, to talk to God, respond to the servant however you need to. And if it's the first time that you reach out for the servant and invite him to yourself, I invite you to Tell someone about it afterwards. That will help it to stick for you. Let's respond with the song.